Welcome to the Second Society Project production of The Great Conversation. My name is David Schmidt. I'll be your host. My two guests are the esteemed Dr. E. Michael Jones and Kevin McDonald. Most of you will know who these gentlemen are. E. Michael Jones is uh, the editor of Culture Wars and uh, has numerous books that you can find at that site. Kevin McDonald is the editor of The Occidental Observer, also with uh, his books at that site. Um, and <clears throat> uh, Dr. Jones graduated from Temple University uh, was a professor of English before launching his self-publishing career, which he did it with, with amazing uh, uh, results. Uh, I am envious indeed. Uh, Kevin McDonald is a uh, uh, evolutionary psychologist. Both of these gentlemen have, have tackled some uh, very controversial topics in our day, particularly the relationship of uh, uh, the Jewish uh, ethnic group to uh, history. Just a background, since almost no nobody, not no one will know of me. Um, uh, my doctorate is in uh, uh, neuroethology, or the. Uh, uh, behavior looked at through the perspective of the uh, nervous system. I did a, my work on uh, the orientation of honeybees in magnetic fields. I worked in industry for a while uh, in, a, in a project to mitigate the collision of birds with wind turbines, taught college. Uh, I had a longstanding interest in the uh, evolution of the vertebrate nervous system, particularly how uh, cerebrospinal fluid and the central canal of the nervous system are involved in uh, uh, emotional, uh, the, mo the emotional aspects and uh, uh, features of the brain. And uh, I did that uh, work at, at uh, the Nobel Institute as a guest scientist. Subsequent to that, I, I uh, looked for some scientific approaches to um, government uh, in a government agency uh, regarding public health and the, the environment. Currently, I'm working on projects uh, such as uh, uh, type one motor uh, muscle fibers and uh, there are some unique properties of them. I am a uh, practicing Catholic, I, and I uh, uh, have a long-standing interest in the mind-brain problem. And uh, in uh, 2013 and 2014, I, I, I presented some talks at uh, universities uh, regarding uh, uh, quantum, quantum physics and uh, the brain. Uh, the topics were, uh, one such topic was uh, a uh, atomistic neuroscience uh, a, uh, uh, to the rescue 
and um, the uh, mind brain opportunity. So I think there's an opportunity there and that may actually even uh, come up in passing uh, in our talk here. Regarding our talk today and our conversation, we're going to shoot for the conversational mm -hmm. style as opposed to the debate. So if uh, some of you have your tomatoes all shined up to be throwing at us, uh, we're going to we're going to disappoint you, and I hope we we delight you in another way. We're going to try and proceed towards uh, some type of uh, uh, way, even if we don't uh, agree on things, at least that we can build a platform from which you can make a difference in 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 your world with the problems facing. Uh, uh, particularly Europeans, the European ethnic groups or the European race as, as the two may parse that and uh, how to protect our people. And this is really a, this is really important for any ethnic group. These are principles that just about anyone of any, any ethnic group or any race uh, can, can apply and uh, in opposition to some of the rather uh, uh, ugly forces that seem to be aligned against uh, humanity in general. So there, uh, there's uh, really two things that, uh, that we're gonna be dealing with, one specific, one general. The specific, specific one would be uh, how we should be thinking about Jews in relation to history and current culture, and then the broader topic of uh, race and ethnicity in general. I think I've talked uh, long enough as an introduction, and I would like to uh, turn then to Kevin McDonald for some some initial some initial conversation starter. Well, it's it's great to, to talk with you, Michael Jones. We we have uh, corresponded, uh, sort of been involved in written kind of exchanges. Um, so I, I am fairly familiar with his work, uh, and uh, I, you know, I, it's it's great stuff. I I admire it. Um, certainly, we have different uh, backgrounds, different perspectives on all this, but I I don't see. Uh, you know, my my view, my general view is uh, you're different folks for different folks that. We're, we're, we essentially have different audiences and uh, different paradigms. And um, I, I don't think that there's any need to, because uh, in the end, we're sort of heading in the same direction. So I don't, I don't want to see a fundamentalist disagreements. Uh, certainly we, we probably do. I know um, things, issues related to race and, and things like that, uh, but uh, fundamentally, uh, say for Jewish influence, we are completely uh, on board with that. What and what can I ask as a follow-up? Uh, what is that direction that, that you see the two of you uh, going in? That that one is going in. That what what is that common direction that you well, see? Well, I, I think that that both of us are basically standing up for for the um, traditional morality, the uh, traditional culture of the West, um, and uh, that uh, yeah, that we are opposing the forces that are. Uh, really destroying the West, um, uh, you know, 
you know, especially the, the messages coming from the media, the academic world uh, are poisonous. Um, and in my view, you know, this massive um, immigration onslaught uh, is bringing in peoples that have no interest in our culture, no, no traditions with it, and ultimately will, will rise up against us and, and will be a, a potent force against Westerners. Um, so I, 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 I think that, uh, that those, are, those are my kind of ideas and, and uh, where, where, where I hope we're kind of going. Michael? Yes, uh, first of all, I'd like to say it's an honor to be here with uh, Kevin. Uh, I've admired his works for a long time, uh, especially his works on immigration. He gets to the heart of the matter in a way that uh, few Few people do. Few people do. Uh, I'd just like to talk about uh, recent uh, occurrence in Virginia. The uh, election in Virginia got a lot of news, especially uh, in conservative circles. It was a, a resounding uh, defeat for the Democrat who thought uh, was going to win easily. Uh, it was pure uh, culture wars. Pure, unadulterated culture wars. Uh, mothers going to school board meetings, talking about pedophilic uh, propaganda in the school library, uh, the, the Democrat being caught like a deer in the headlights saying that um, uh, no parent should have anything to say about what goes on in the schools, people being outraged by that, and, and a huge uh, backlash uh, and uh, defeat for, the, uh, for a critical race theory. Okay, so the, the, the champagne courts were popping and everybody got inebriated. And then we woke up the next day with a little bit of a hangover. And then I started looking into Mr. Yunkin. And it turns out, well, his por former gig was uh, working for the Carlisle Group. Oh, wait a minute. I, I know about the Carlisle Group. Uh, Mr. Rosenberg uh, used to be the head of it. And uh, they used the money uh, from the Carlyle Group to fund the American Enterprise Institute, which is the prime premier, uh, probably Zionist uh, libertarian think tank in Washington. So at this point, I started to get a little nervous, you know, uh, and then it turns out in May of this year, uh, as part of his campaign, Mr. Yunkin uh, issued a statement about what he's going to do to combat anti-Semitism in the state of Virginia. Now, well, you, no, none of us knew what a, what a serious problem anti-Semitism was in the state of Virginia. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up here is that we have to go, I think we're seeing a, a shift back and forth in the political realm between one party and another. One party gets into power, they overplay their hand, that paves the way for the other party to come in. But we don't get to the heart of the matter here. And so we're in the middle, I think, of a, a, a historic shift politically in the United States away from centralism. That whole post-war period where the Senate, Washington just concentrated power, more and more power into its hands, seems to be, the tide seems to be going in the opposite direction. Uh, with this, especially the COVID mandate. And uh, uh, as a result, regional government is becoming more important. And so we, we, we are in the same mode when uh, F Governor DeSantis uh, stands up to the COVID thing uh, and Governor Abbott in Texas. And then once again, once the initial euphoria 
wears off. It turns out, oh, wait a minute, Governor DeSantis passed a bill saying it's illegal to criticize Israel on state uh, campuses. And uh, Governor Abbott, the other champion of our cause, uh, uh, it turns out he, after one week after saying anybody who got deplatformed uh, is welcome in Texas, up oh, but Gab shows up and Gab is not welcome because Gab hosts uh, talk, uh, Andrew Torba talks about people like uh, E. Michael Jones, and and that's bad. And so here we are. Here we are. We have this with this political process that deals with the superficiality of the situation. And nobody, uh, aside from our uh, my illustrious colleague here, uh, is willing to go beneath the surface and talk about the hidden grammar of what's going on here. We can't address this unless we address the Jewish question. I think that's what we, one of the things we have in common. I, I agree totally. And uh, it's, it's very hard to find any Republicans who are you know, 100% wonderful. I mean, they're just not, uh, I, I can't think of anybody. Um, the, uh, the, and the reality is that even though I, I, do, I do agree that we're in a, definitely a period of flux, uh, you know, crisis point in our whole culture. Uh, and that things could go a lot of different ways. But um, the, the fact is that, that we are up against an incredible power here. Um, that, you know, you talk about almost all, really all the media, because even, you know, the conservatives uh, on Fox News or Tucker Carlson is routinely called out as a white nationalist. He doesn't even talk about Jewish issues. So uh, we, we got the entire media, we got corporate culture now. I mean, corporate corporations used to be sort of famously reactionary or something, not anymore. So many are woke. Uh, then, then we got, um, you know, the, you talk about the academic world, I mean, completely on the left. Now the K-12 school system teaching critical race theory, they may well have gone too far, I don't think, I hope so. Uh, and it's great that uh, parents, uh, some parents are standing up, wow. Um, and, and deserting this. And so the Republicans are definitely going to key on that issue, on education. Uh, that's become a big issue now for, for the Republicans, and I hope they can carry them to victory because I, I, I know the sort of, you know, that we can't really expect a redeemer in the American political context. Uh, we have to go little by little, and I, I would hope that, um, you know, this, this issue would have legs into 2022, uh, that in the COVID uh, lockdowns. Uh, I, I agree with what you're saying there because uh, these mandates are just they're very un-American. There's and it's uh, um, there's a lot of people that do not trust those things and, and increasing reason not to. And uh, but we'll see. Again, I, I, I sometimes I look out at the, at how much power is arrayed against us. And, uh, you know, how the right can't even have demonstrations anymore without the Antifa, you know, going out there and beating on their heads. And then uh, the Antifa being completely exonerated, not no problems. And whereas uh, the people that are protesting get the, the book thrown at them. So we're not in good shape here. Here's um, three little really fast vignettes that I, th I, I hope might point us towards uh, how we can begin to uh, get a uh, crowbar into the issue and, and, and maybe take some action. Uh, since the political realm is, well, it is what it is, and we, we do need to do what we can do there. Um, I think back to when I was in college in the 1970s, 
And I grew up in a rather philo-Semitic family. Uh, and um, uh, so I, I was a member of the philosophy club in college, went to a, a meeting. They had invited a rabbi, local rabbi. Now, this man knew nothing about, and oh, of course, the uh, topic was Elie Wiesel's Night. And I read it like uh, 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 avidly with lots <laughs> of notations. And I get there, I'm very excited. And um, <clears throat> all he, this rabbi knew about me was my last name, Schmidt. And uh, during the Q&A, he then launched into a, just a vicious attack of me. And uh, he first of all demanded, he said, I want you to tell me what you mean by Jewing people down. Well, you know, I, I had no idea what he was talking about. I never heard that kind of talk in my home. And I grew up in Pittsburgh, which, which in those days, the Pittsburgh Renaissance, I mean, there was just lots of good inter-ethnic feeling, even between Jews and Catholics and Protestants. What well, I, I was, I, I was dumb, dumbfounded, and he he persisted, he, and he accused me of lying to him. Uh, so, and I don't know why this didn't have a more of an well, maybe it did have an impact because I sort of committed myself that uh, that as it. Because I recognized, even as a teenager that, and a little protobiologist, that there, there was a problem with that, that just because Jews didn't intermarry generally with, with uh, the Christian culture, that that, that, that that reproductive isolation would be, you know, the foundation for tension, uh, as, as niche theory uh, sort of tells us. It would be. And the, uh, and the closer you are, the, the more difficult it is. Uh, and so in graduate school, I, I, I tried to make all these outreaches to Jews on campus, Jewish faculty, what have you, and always a rebuff. And a friend from the history department reminded me about Nostra Etate, that we Catholics shouldn't be, we shouldn't be trying to convert Jews, which is what I thought the solution was. Um, and, uh, and so it, you know, and now in Oklahoma, there's it's the belt buckle of the Bible belt, and and so you have this very strong sense of Christian Zionism, and Jewish politicians come to Oklahoma and spread money and influence around, and and of course they keep keep that 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 sort of of, of thing going. So, um, it it the Oh, and re really quickly, just two days ago, I was visiting with a, a, a man uh, looking at houses and noticing the old family vignette pictures, you know, of his German family. And uh, without, we didn't discuss any of this, but without provocation, he more than once said, oh, you know, and uh, when Hitler came, we all st stopped talking German. Um, so... Anyway, there's three little vignettes. Maybe you fellas can build on that uh, in terms of what we can do to revitalize European ethnic culture, um, and uh, uh, what because it, 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 it's glaringly obvious that we're being diluted, 
that our young people are not existing in sufficient cultural and physical concentration to marry well, to find good spouses and to start families and to even have the vision of starting a family. Well, uh, Kevin, Kevin brought up, uh, mentioned that we can't expect a redeemer. Um, I am expecting a redeemer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, his name is, as a matter of fact, if I weren't expecting a redeemer, I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be right. crazy enough to do this. But uh, this brings up, I think, the approach, the approach that uh, I felt that I had to take in this thing, which is when I wrote the, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, which came out about 13 years ago. Uh, I felt that uh, I had to break out of the whole racial narrative. I felt that I was, I, was, I was condemned to lose every time I would open my mouth if I didn't break out of that racial narrative. So I took it back into a religious context. And the beginning of the Jewish revolutionary spirit was the crucifixion, when the Jews turned on their Messiah, on Jesus Christ, and killed him. And at that point, they turned on the Logos, and they destroyed, they attempted to kill the Logos, the Logos incarnate. And when you attack the Logos in this fundamental metaphysical way, you become revolutionaries. And that's what they've been ever since. I don't think I have any problem persuading this current company here that Jews are revolutionaries and they've been revolutionaries. But I felt that I had to deal with it from a theological perspective in order to break out of, of the dead end that it seems to me it was in. Now, the disappointing part of all this is the reaction of the Catholic Church to me coming along as the guy who's going to help them. They are committed. They have been committed for the past 50 some years to something they call Catholic Jewish dialogue, which has been an unmitigated disaster for the Catholic church. And I would say uh, for the world as well, because the church has been crippled by this dialogue to the point more re recently where uh, Pope Francis quoted from the epistle to the Galatians and was rebuked by a rabbi saying, you're, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to, you have to ask our permission before you can cite St. Paul. Who would have thought, this is the culmination of Catholic Jewish dialogue. And I think it's one of the main uh, problems, one of the main obstacles that we face is simply the absolute uh, disconnectedness of the Catholic Church on this issue, which I see as a fundamentally uh, uh, spiritual theological issue. The idea issue here is Logos, rejection of Logos. If you reject Logos, you become a revolutionary. And that's been the problem with Jews for the past 2,000 years. That's the way I see it uh, going forward. And uh, I, uh, real quickly, uh, one of the things I, I appreciate about your uh, focus on Logos is, and I have a longstanding uh, uh, attraction to it as well from back in my days of at Notre Dame where when I published a graduate or did a graphic for a graduate student book on it with logos on it is that it it it, it opens the door for those people who have who've gotten tired of the Jesus talk so I think it, it it's it's a uh, it's another uh, entrance ramp for them to reconsider Christianity but Kevin yeah, it's, it's, it, I, 
I think um, we, we both agree that it's important to find some way of getting at this question that appeals to people. And, and certainly the idea of, of Jews, you know, their history with Christianity, killing Christ and the whole thing is uh, you know, one way to do it. Um, my background's very different. Uh, you know, I, you, you were talking, uh, David, you were talking about uh, how you sort of came on this with this crazy rabbi you were encountering. In my case, it was just reading. Uh, for for uh, a project really in evolutionary psychology, the idea of group, the, the groups can be analyzed from an evolution perspective. That was like heresy in the, in the 80s. And um, so I, I developed the idea that groups could uh, be analyzed and, and very interesting. And I, I focused on Jews because there's so much written about them. And they're so, so damn important really throughout history. Uh, and so that that's how it all started. And uh, that then you continue in that in that line that they choose are this closed ethnic group that they always resisted assimilation that they wouldn't intermarry uh, that they have have had always had adversarial uh, relationships with the people around them uh, and really view other people as subhuman really uh, and um, so and, and they is exploitable that that there's no problem going out and and exploiting non-Jews to the hill. Whereas, you, whereas if you do that to a Jew, you will be expelled, you will have a severe sanction. So there's a huge in-group, out-group morality. One of the big jokes that you see, if you go to Wikipedia and the page on Jewish morality, it's like a wonderland of complete lack of historical perspective that these people have had this, this double standard of morality forever. Uh, you know, with slaves, for example, you could, you could treat non-Jewish slaves very differently. Crimes, crimes were treated very differently with, depending on if it was a, a Gentile victim or a Jewish victim. Uh, and, and so that, that's, the, that's the reality that, that you know, this in-group, out-group dynamic and ethnicity being the, the, the base of me, their horror of intermarriage. Uh, going back to the Old Testament, you, you know, the, the idea that they would, when they came into the land of Israel there, they were supposed to kill everybody. It's everything that breathed and everything that they didn't kill, they were supposed to enslave. And, and you know, one of the remarkable things that always struck me about that was that they, they actually lived among these people that they conquered, that they, the ones they didn't slaughter, they, they actually lived among them for hundreds of years without any mixture. You know, that, that, that's a separate, that, that never happens in Western societies. We're the, you know, we're, we're the assimilators, we're, we're prone to individualism. We, well, going back to the ancient world, the Romans, they eventually assimilated everybody. That was the whole key to their success was assimilating other groups. So that, that's, you know, that's my perspective, that, that uh, fundamentally it, it's about group competition and that, that Jews have, have produced very powerful, very effective comparative group. I mean, with, uh, with their IQ, that they, they have had selection within their group for high IQ. This has enabled them to, to be very good businessmen. They've been focused on business. And uh, here they are in America. They're uh, totally at the very top of our society. And their wealth enables them to, uh, you know, fund the Israel lobby, to fund uh, all the other sort of left-wing uh, organizations. You look at the top, uh, I was just looking yesterday at the top contributors to, to the Democratic Party. Every one of them is Jewish. And, and uh, you know, they're all totally on board with basically dispossessing white America. And um, they, they love the, the whole, this whole 
culture, this disastrous culture that, that is emanating from Hollywood for the last, you know, at least uh, ever since the controls on Hollywood uh, lapsed uh, around 1960. So it, it, it really, uh, um, that, that's sort of my perspective. I, I, again, it's, it's just a different way of seeing it. And I think, I think we both agree that Jews have been exploited in towards the people around them. Right. Uh, they have, I, uh, Michael, I, th I think I think that uh, d d d a specific instance might be helpful here to get this uh, uh, farther. Uh, let's talk about Harvard University. Yeah. Uh, Harvard is now a Jewish university. I don't think there's any question. The Jews took over Harvard. Yeah. Okay. They began in the 1920s uh, when the big wave of Jewish migration became apparent. Harvard set quotas on Jews. And now you've got Harvard basically condemning its own action and trying to preserve its integrity. And the Jews repay them by taking over the university. My, yeah. uh, my, oldest, my oldest son uh, went to Harvard. Um, and uh, he and uh, his uh, fellow Catholics, a lot of them Irish Catholics from Boston, felt beleaguered and they started their own magazine and criticized the homosexual agenda. And this brought outrage. Uh, the, the man who was known as the Christian minister, Christian minister, a man by the name of Gomes, uh, uh, came out as a homosexual because of the articles these kids wrote. Uh, the guilty flea where none pursueth. Nobody talked about him at all, but I think he saw a career move. I mention this because just this year, th that's the title of his office. That, the Christian minister is the title of that man's office, whatever it is, chaplain to the university, whatever. This year, that... Uh, position is now being occupied by a Jewish atheist. Yeah. This is a sign of how they have taken over that university. Now, the question here is, are they smart? Are Jews smart? Now, before you answer that question, I think we have to go and look into the SATs, for example. You know, the SATs, the Kaplan uh, prep course for the SATs in Brooklyn. That was ex an exclusively Jewish operation that uh, basically uh, this man, Kaplan, uh, would give the prep course, the kids would take the test, and then they have a party afterwards. And after, at the party, the admission to the party was you had to give Kaplan one question from the test. Well, within two years, he knew every single question and every single answer for that test. And the Jews used that to get in to the university and take over the university. So yeah. I, I, would, I would dispute the contention that they're, intelligent i think they're good at cheating and i think that this is an example of that I, I, so i just just to give you from my personal perspective my oldest son got in to harvard my youngest son applied my youngest son had if you want to talk about test scores he had higher board scores than my oldest son he didn't take the kaplan course he just got high scores and it all came down to the final interview it's like oh it's just a shoe-in well no it's not because he got a Jew as the guy who was interviewing. And the guy called me up and I could feel this anger in this guy's, I don't know what he's mad about, but he's mad about something and the younger son did not get in, mm. okay? Because of that. Now there are other factors here. He wanted to go dance, he was uh, but anyway, the point here is that this takeover has taken place, but in order to understand it, I think we have to back away from what I would call uh, this idea of Jewish intelligence. I, I think we're, I think we're, we're, we're not talking about the same thing here. 
We're not talking about the Harvard uh, back uh, before the SAT era when you had to go there and you had to talk to the professors and you had to write an essay and so on and so forth. We're talking about a takeover of our culture that uh, has basically defined intelligence as what, what the Jew does. That's pretty much what we have here. Medicine Michael, is another example. Michael, let me, uh, let me see if I can get at this very thing uh, with both of you. Um, uh, regarding Jewish intelligence, it's, uh, there is a complexity uh, in your story. I think it's quite possible that uh, there is a measurable uh, IQ difference in distributions. Uh, however, I would agree with you, there are lots of uh, other, other mitigating extraneous cultural um, let, let me, let me just give, to be let considered. Me, let, me, let me just give no, one no, example. Let me finish, Michael. Let, let me finish. I, I just and want then, to give. Then, I'll, let, I'll let you talk. Let me finish this. Um, uh, for instance, uh, in, in your Tim Kelly, recent Tim Kelly interview, um, you, uh, you, 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 you had some criticisms of Kevin in the latter third of the interview where uh, you, you said that uh, Kevin, uh, because of his focus on, as you said, DNA, uh, you said that, that Kevin views uh, Jews as uh, robots and incapable of, of self-altering uh, their behavior. Uh, so that's one little point I want to put on the table uh, to, try and, to try and and to try and tackle. Um, the other one is, and then I'll let you both talk and have at it a long time. Uh, the other the other point that I'd like you two to uh, discuss um, uh, has to has to do with. Um, uh, uh, whether, oh, let's see, I, I lost my train of thought there for a second. <laughs> he interrupted me. Um, the, um, uh, the question of, gosh, well, well, let's just start with that and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll come up with, my brain will start working again. And, and, and oh, here, here's what it is. And, and I, I probably Kevin has gotten tired of hearing me say this over the years, is that I, I suggest that Europeans need to look at, at uh, some specific things that the Jews do apart from cheating, but some things that they do culturally, socially, and as a group uh, that we might emulate. And, and it, if those things produce goods, uh, then they're universals and, and we shouldn't uh, uh, be repulsed at trying to emulate them. And that is they, they have a good sexual, sexual selection process. Uh, they focus on, it, uh, to a greater degree, they focus on intelligence in mating. Uh, it, when you look at many uh, Catholic cultures, certainly Notre Dame or, or other cultures, you, you have uh, uh, a kind of sexual selection based on being jocks, 
Okay, it's a, I'm painting with a broad brush. But what I'm saying is, uh, you know, the Catholic school system was doing a pretty good job at elevating the, the, the intellectual character of Catholic Europeans. And unfortunately, as, as you've identified, Michael, that, that was rather deliberately destroyed. But how about <laughs> those two topics? And why don't you two wrestle with that? So uh, what, do I, what I want to say was that, uh, yeah, I, I am a believer in IQ that you have a higher IQ. I don't think that's the whole story. Uh, I, I defer to, to uh, Richard Lynn, his estimate uh, based on all his studies is about 111 on the average time is higher, but um, he, um, the, the point is that uh, I think networking is also critically important. I mean, the whole book, thesis of my book, The Culture of Fatigue, these are not individual researchers. They're, they're helping each other, they're promoting each other, they're citing each other, all that. So that this is not just, uh, you know, Freud didn't become influential by the power of his ideas, but rather because there were so many people behind him. And then he got into the big universities and, and the big university presses and, and the media and all that. Uh, so it, it was, uh, it, you know, it was had a, like a big bullhorn. Uh, the same with um, Boas, the same with the Frankfurt School and New York Intellectuals. All these, these people have benefited from the sort of Jewish network that, that is uh, very well positioned in the media and academic world and everywhere else. Regarding, you know, Jews getting into, uh, I, I totally agree that Jews have taken over Harvard. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were on 25% or so, uh, where, you know, compared to 2%, 2, 3% 2, of the population. The group that really is, uh, is discriminated against, well, two groups, the Asian Americans and, and, and non-Jewish white Americans. And um, uh, the, I'm sure that part of it is having people like, 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 like Mike was emphasizing there with that, that Jewish interviewer. When you, when you go to the application process of a place like that, you're probably going to be uh, poured over at least by some Jewish person somewhere along the line or else some non-Jew who understands that, that Jews are going to get preferential treatment because Jews are being admitted to these places way, way in excess of what their IQ would predict. I've written a couple pieces on that. And Ron Unz has had a very interesting thing on, on the idea that the Jewish accomplishment has basically declined since earlier in the century. When Jews were, you know, new immigrants, they were like really hustling and working hard and moving up and, and all that. And, and, but now that they're sort of made it, they're lazy. And, they're, and you know, he had examples of, of, of these uh, Jews who got into prestigious universities like Ivy League University and had no aptitude for college at all. They only got in there because daddy was, was rich and powerful. I mean, you look at someone like Kushner, he only got into Harvard because his dad gave some huge contribution to Harvard. Uh, and, and, you know, so it's, it's not, you know, academic merit anymore. Uh, and uh, the Jewish accomplishment has been going way down. If you look at academic prizes, Phi Beta Kappa, all those things have declined dramatically among Jews at Harvard. So yeah, Muslims shouldn't even be there uh, at this point. But, but especially if you look at graduate students at Harvard, over in, the, the percentage is even higher when it comes to, 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 to that. And that's critically important because Harvard has huge prestige yet. Uh, and so you get a PhD at Harvard and you can like pick, pick where you wanna go uh, for a faculty position. And so that's, that's where the next generation of research institutions comes from. 
and uh, you know they they are totally uh, on board with that. They're either going to be Jewish or they're going to be completely socialized and signal that they are on board with all those ideas, and then they will be allowed to be in it. Uh, so that's I really think that is what's going on there. They are. Um, uh, you know, all this affirmative action where Blacks and Latinos and all are getting in, it's not going to really affect Jewish uh, overrepresentation in these, in, these, uh, in these institutions. They, they are going to continue that uh, one way or another. And uh, uh, this is our new elite. And they're, they're becoming less and less, less and less distinguished, less and less, you know, Really, they're not, they're not working as hard. They're not doing anything like they used to do. So we'll see. I, I, I think Kevin's, Kevin's right when he emphasizes this networking thing. But the networking is the opposite of intelligence. The networking, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. El you eliminate uh, any need for intelligence because you've got a network. And yeah. that's, part, that's exactly part of the problem. Wherever you look in the 20th century, you will see the rise of Jewish influence and the decline of whatever it is they got involved in. Yeah. So let, let's get, uh, let's, I just finished a book on art, on aesthetics. Uh, let's take painting, uh, the, the visual arts. Uh, the, one of the <clears throat> best uh, famous painters, most famous painters in the 20th century is Picasso. Was Picasso uh, a great painter because he painted great pictures? No. He was a great painter because a German Jew by the name of Kahnweiler arrived in Paris in 1907 and created a movement called Cubism and basically turned art into insider trading. That mm -hmm. continued. Uh, in New York in, in uh, 1947, another Jew, this one by the name of Castelli, he took his mother's name, uh, he comes and he creates a dance craze called uh, Abstract Expressionism. Again, this is, this is as soon as they get involved in a particular field, the field goes down the drain. There yeah. is no group, no group, I would say, that is less competent and less capable of running a university than the Jews because they make good commissars. Uh, a classic example would be Deborah Lipstadt. Deborah, <laughs> what, what has she produced in terms Don't of- Don't get me started. What is what is she produced? But when when my uh, when Culture Wars magazine publishes an article by uh, uh, um, uh, another professor from uh, Georgia, David O'Connell, on Ailey Wiesel that simply tore Ailey Wiesel apart, did she get? Did she write a letter to the editor refuting what David O'Connell said? No, she went right to the department chairman and had fire this guy. This is what this is what Jews are good at doing. They're good commissars. They have that whenever they get into any type of academic or artistic environment, the whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket. Gentlemen, so uh, going forward, agree. what we can do about it. Uh, now I'd like you to uh, address my point regarding sexual selection. Uh, among Europeans and let's take subgroups like Catholics or Protestants, what can we do to rebuild a reproductive culture uh, in, in the remaining fragments of institutions that we, that we have? Um, you know, here in Oklahoma, we have a, a, a governor, supposedly conservative, but 
you know, always uh, they have uh, the checkerboard uh, nature to their, their, their characteristics. And he wants to establish a, uh, a Mexican consulate here in Oklahoma. Uh, my parish priest and I uh, had a little discussion after mass on All Saints Day regarding uh, uh, immigration and his, his commandeering the homily to, to tell us not to uh, harm the illegal immigrant. Well, <clears throat> who's harming the illegal immigrant? Nobody is. Those kind of things are just propaganda pieces for launching into uh, uh, a political uh, browbeating. Uh, so we need to really, uh, and this is one area where I think Europeans and, and again, the subgroups like Catholics have really dropped the ball because babies are power. Um, when I was at Notre Dame, I, I used to hawk my idea called, that I tried to make provocative, I called condom economics, where, where I explored the problems with, with uh, a contraceptive culture. And uh, I think we really have to hit that head on as maybe the, or at least one of the major, major problems that, that we need to overcome. And, and, and babies beat all kinds of politicking, just having babies. At least that's my perspective. Yeah. You two have had it on that one. Well, I, again, I, I would like to totally agree with the importance of that networking. And the intellectuals that I've covered, again, it's not the, the power of their ideas, it's the power of their ethnic networking and being able to place people in prominent universities, have public, prominent media uh, publishing houses behind their work. And uh, I totally agree about our, we, we've covered people like uh, Rothko and uh, Jackson Pollock, whose career was entirely due to, Cre to uh, Clement Greenberg, uh, and uh, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, this this uh, disaster in the art world is really, you know, really all about Jewish influence and uh, being able to sort of talk about it and uh, yeah, and insider trading. Where yeah, I think I think Greenberg got a, quite a few of Pollock's uh, paintings at a very low. Uh, price when he was sort of struggling and coming up. And then when he promoted Pollock, they, they were worth a whole lot of money. So that's the way it goes. Uh, this is just a completely corrupt system. You know, and I, th I think Jews understood a long time that what truth is not important. What's really important is consensus. And it's always been that way for Jews. If you look at even at Jewish religious ideology, just having consensus with the, within the group, the rabbi. Uh, but they, they, because they're, they're so big in the media and the academic world, these are the creators of culture really in our society, um, that they are able to create these consensus. Which you know, is philosophical which, pragmatism, right, Kevin? Right. Yeah, philosophical pragmatism. Yeah, yeah they, they are able to uh, create a consensus and then people salute, you know, and, and people are by nature conformists. And if you don't conform to consensus, especially now, you are going to be ostracized. You may lose your job if you say, uh, well, I don't like Black Lives Matter, or I don't want the vaccine or something like that. You can lose your job easily. And um, th that's the way, that, you know, as, as Mike was saying, uh, that they make very good commissars. 
And, and one, my, my big concern about the future is that they will be the commissars almost literally again, as they were in the Soviet Union. This is a, a revolution in the making. And if they win, uh, you know, I think, I think Michael and I will be sharing a cell in some gulag uh, because this really where, where, where this is headed. They, if you look at the, the treatment of the January 6th protesters, these guys are getting solitary confinement. They're being abused in prison. They're being, and for, for what? Just walking around. They, so this guy didn't even go in the Capitol. I mean, it's just an amazing thing uh, that, that's happening here. We're, you know, again, Antifa are completely uh, unprosecuted. They can burn things down. They can uh, assault police and all this. Whereas if a right-winger does that, you know, they're going to put them away as long as they can. You're not going to see them for a while. Michael? Yes, I, I, I think the, 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 you, we have to regain control of our culture. The question is, how, how, how do we do that? I think that there, there was a significant movement. I don't want to denigrate what happened in Virginia. I think it was significant that the, we're, we are in a battle here over representative government. Representative government is being abolished now. And in Virginia, the, the mothers who went to the school board meeting scored a victory and restored that. They restored representative government. This, this is what it's going to come down to in terms of these cultural battles. My argument is that we have to expand the conversation to include the man behind the curtain, the man behind every curtain, because if we don't right. do, don't do this, we're not going to get anywhere. And so you constantly I've just just a uh, an example <clears throat> of academe, uh, the pointlessness of academe, uh, the James Madison Center at uh, Princeton University has this illustrious thinker and he comes up and he says, yeah, there was a battle over the cross in San Diego. And on the one side, you had Catholics and Jews. And on the other side, you had pagans. Well, wait a minute. That, that, what, what do you mean pagans? What do you mean? Diocletian came back from the dead? What are you talking about? This is a deliberate attempt to resurrect conservatism this category of the mind, and then suddenly say there's no kind of Catholic Jewish animus in human history or Catholic Jewish animus in American history. We have to, we have to break that embargo. Kevin mentioned the, uh, the, the production code in Hollywood. That was a Catholic Jewish battle. That's right. And, I, and I'm saying that's what it's always been, and we have to wake up to that fact, and we as Catholics have to just take this whole idea of Catholic-Jewish dialogue and say it's a failed experiment. We have to get in touch with reality. And the reality is there's always been a conflict between Logos and anti-Logos. And the main representatives in history of those two poles have been the Catholic Church and the Jews. And that's what it is today, except that the Catholic Church is offering no resistance whatsoever. They have rolled over and played dead. And as a result, we are all suffering. They have enabled the Jewish takeover our, of our culture. Wow. Again, uh, I think we sidestepped something. And uh, if there was a reason for that, I, I respect it. And of course, I love this, this, academic, this academic argument. It's very important. The theory is important. Phronesis is the combination of theory plus practice. And uh so but that's what i want to do i mean you two have have uh moved us so far along in terms of the theory that 
you can't be thanked enough. Um, what I mentioned uh, is a couple things. One is that we begin to network in the proper ways as, as uh, Europeans, uh, as, as intellectuals, and that also that at the, at the ground level of where we live, in our parishes, in our neighborhoods, we need to uh, find ways to help young people begin to form families. I'm going to say it again. Babies are power. Babies are power. And they, they, they beat all kind of academic arguments. They beat all kind of legal arguments, as we're seeing today, uh, uh, waged against us. So... Please comment on that. A Just a short point on there. If if every Catholic student in a Catholic school has to read Ailey Wiesel's Night, it doesn't matter how many babies the Catholic have. If they have to go through that gauntlet, that has that hold has to be broken. That hold the Jewish stranglehold on Catholic education has to be broken because it doesn't matter how many babies you have if they all have to read Ailey Wiesel. Again, phronesis. I agree. The theory is so important. That's that's why we're here in part. But uh, I also want to stress that uh, the the great matrix of a population is not going to be reading L.A. Resales. Now, admittedly, the thought leaders are, and that's important. But we also have to work in our local areas to start promoting family life again. <clears throat> Well, we have to certainly work locally, but the reality is that culture uh, is a top-down process now, uh, and it has been for quite a long time. And, and that's the thing that the Jews have really aimed at, you know, getting rid of populist kind of uh, bottom-up influences in, in the political culture going back to the 1930s. And uh, so that they, what they want is a, is a top-down culture that is determined by elites, by the, you know, this intellectual, financial class, and that's what we see, really, that you, you have this, this, this you know, top-down um, power that is arrayed against us. And, and so we have to deal with that. And, and I think, you know, ultimately, Western societies are about, uh, about reason and rationality. And, and, we, and I think it's very important to have good arguments out there. Uh, because you're not going to persuade, you're not going to persuade these Jewish intellectuals, certainly. But uh, you are going to be able to persuade uh, thinking people. And it's important to, to do that, to have a cadre of people who are um, smart and are, are able to reject this, this elite culture and do it on principled, uh, well-reasoned uh, grounds. Otherwise, uh, you know, we are just going to be labeled as a bunch of rubes, uh, uneducated, and we don't know anything anyway. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I got you. Let, me, let me try this. Let me try a different approach, which is, uh, uh, I think you both would know from your respective fields of expertise, Michael in literature, Kevin in biology, especially a biology that involves communication. There is, uh, there is this uh, Shannon Weaver idea in the theory of communication of transmitter, channel, and receptor. 
And uh, what I would say is everything that you and I are saying about the importance of the theory is, is very critical, is very critical from the transmitter end, but you also need to have receivers. And if you have a healthy population, a healthy sizable population, uh, not only are you creating just in simple numbers, because uh, we do have faith in the 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 uh, uh, talent, the intellectual talent of the Europeans. So more Europeans, more intellectual talent to receive the message. But also, you start creating pressures. You start creating pressures for the need of schools and hospitals and in intellectual institutions and journals, and you create the need for for uh, intellectual discussion and the receptivity for wonderful things that you're producing in your books and at Culture Wars and the Occidental Observer. So you need actual bodies to, to receive that information. Look, Philadelphia, uh, when I was growing up, had the largest Catholic grade school in the world, most blessed sacrament, 3,000 students, and it had the largest Catholic high school in the world, uh, Cardinal Doherty, 5,000 students. And what those two things now have in common is non-existence. They don't exist anymore. Now, there's a sense in which uh, you could say it, it's a question of bodies. Where were the people? I talked about the ethnic cleansing of Catholics from Philadelphia. That's what created the vacuum that was filled by other, other ethnic groups here. But the main, the main problem was the mind. It wasn't numbers, it was the mind. The mind of these people was captured by the culture. And once the mind is captured, you're just a robot, you're a zombie. And that, that's, that's the, the crux of what we're talking about. We are contending, contesting for the mind of the American people. And to some extent, we are winning. And uh, the reason, proof that I can say that we're winning is because we are banned so frequently. This is proof. If these Jews were as intelligent, as intelligent as Kevin says they are, why don't they refute what we're saying? Or they don't have any response to what we're saying. They, they ban us. That's all they can do. And that's a sign that we're winning. They can't deal with the truth. It's, it's a fucking it's reality. Uh, they can't deal with the truth. And... Um, we have the truth on our side, and, and that's you know that's an asset. It's not obviously it's not enough, perhaps, but it may be in, in the end. And uh, I'm not, you know I'm always optimistic. I think we can turn this around. I, 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 uh, what happened in Virginia is 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 you know encouraging because it was such a grassroots thing. It was some, something that uh, these people just really felt strongly about, and, and that's what we need. Uh, really understanding uh, that how bad this culture has gotten. Ultimately, we have to understand why it's that way, but it's a good start. As a, as a strategy in uh, regarding the, the theory and uh, the explanations, uh, one thing I would like to, to let our audience hear about and have you discuss is is the idea in, 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 with respect to our trying to uh, converge and form our own consensus i think issues like whether it's a matter of race or it's a matter of ethnicity 
uh, can can become stumbling blocks. When, whereas my approach would say is, is would be to say everything above the individual is is a matter of statistical genetic clustering, and um, so the argument of categories of mind versus categories of reality is is not so helpful. Let's do what. Here's a case where we need to do what. Uh, our opponents are doing, and that is to become very agile at using the explanation in the place where it's most suitable. So if our goal is to uh, enlist the allegiance and loyalty of Europeans in general, then we need to talk about Europeans or Europeans as a group, and if you like, a race. Uh, or as Michael frequently points out, and I agree with him completely, in, in the St. Louis statue case, pointing, uh, 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 identifying oneself correctly as, as Catholics defending that statue was the strategic and tactical uh, thing to do. And that, that, was, that was brilliant. So we wanna be adept at everything that works. And we do have have truth on right. our side, so we don't have, we don't have to cheat about it. Yeah, I, I was going to bring up the ethnic statue thing. I, I, I'm sorry, the battle of over the statue in St. Louis. What you're seeing here is race being used as a weapon here. That's that's what Omar Lee was saying. He was saying that those people at the statue were white supremacists because he knew <laughs> that if he could make that label stick, he would win. And I intervened in that and said, well, why are those white supremacists praying the rosary? They're not white supremacists. They're Catholics. And this is identity theft. And I'm saying that that is a crucial difference here. I've always been saying here that identity is ethnic in America and that there is a racial overlay that has always been weaponized one way or the other. And the only way to deal with it is to revert to the real ethnic identity because race is a formula for losing. You will lose. And the difference, I would say, between St. Louis, the opposite of St. Louis was Charlottesville. Charlottesville, you have people identifying racially and they were destroyed. They were obliterated. You cannot win that battle anymore on those terms. Oh, I, I, I would well, say I would that like within, within uh, when uh, Europeans are talking among themselves, uh, sometimes there de develops this uh, antagonism. I'm sure Kevin has seen it, uh, where let's say certain North Northwest Europeans will even say that you know the Slavs don't belong in in with, with the Europeans or those kind of petty things. So there is sometimes uh, a utility to saying, look, we are all Europeans. Uh, I believe my personal point of view is to say that you you can identify uh, by principal component analysis uh, a clustering that is European, and therefore you can I mean pick the pick the adjective white, or you can say European, but however you like it. But uh, but I, I agree with you, Michael. I think we're all agreeing with you about about the brilliance of uh, the approach in St. Louis. Uh, I don't. I don't know completely that the problem in Charlottesville was 
was that they, those guys identified themselves as white. They were up against uh, something very, <coughs> very powerful and ugly. Kevin, I think. Well, you what I'd like to say is that you know, we have to attack this, this, this elite culture. And a big part of that is pathologizing white identity and white interest. Uh, in, in the same way that we have to attack elite culture of Hollywood and, and, this, and the porn and everything that gets into movies and, and the, the gay uh, you know, the LGBTQ agenda and all that stuff. Uh, we're all, you know, I, I, I'd agree it right now that it's, it's a losing battle, but you know, there have to be people, and I, I, I count myself one of them, that, that analyze it this way and say there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, a big part of my book, Culture Critique, is how, how the Frankfurt School essentially set out to pathologize any sense of white ethnocentrism while saying nothing about Jewish ethnocentrism and, and letting that just slide. Um, so we, we have to attack them uh, on, that they have, you know, boss just making up this garbage that, that race doesn't exist and, and all that. And, and then pursuing people now so to have you stand up for it, you're going to lose your job. I, I agree. We have no power now. But it seems to me we have to attack that, uh, you know, the, the fact that this has been pathologized and everything in the same way that we have to attack everything else that, that this is Jewish uh, revolution, uh, this, this Jewish elite has foisted on us. Uh, that we can't, in a sense, we can't win. I, I don't think we will win. With, without that, I mean, we might, you know, religion is a very powerful identity and maybe it can win. And I'm all, whatever works, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not gonna put down anything that can work. Um, but I'm just saying that, that we have to attack, you know, we have to be able to raise this issue of how it got to, you know, why is white supremacy such a bad thing now? And it wasn't, you know, whiteness was not such a bad thing in 1950 when I was growing up. Michael, and if I can say something to you with, with just profound humility and respect uh, for you and your positions, um, I think the one little thing that maybe you're missing, if I can humbly off offer this is, uh, you know, Kevin and I probably have spent lots of time in biology labs, looking at both unity and diversity you know, we're having to learn species within genera, within larger phyletic groups. There is, there is a reality that can be seen in cluster analysis that is Europeanism. And there, there are realities that can be seen, uh, or there were, I guess they're being eradicated in uh, ethnic, uh, what were uh, roughly nations, throughout Europe. And I'm just saying, let's work with both of those things. Let's be smart about it. Let's be, let's be Europeans when we need to be Europeans. Uh, and let's be uh, ethnic groups when we need to be ethnic groups. Any general, like a general who is waging a war, uh, you know, he, he has, let's say the Union Armory, but he has companies from Maine or Virginia or Pennsylvania so you, 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 you develop the pride of the company from Pennsylvania and you develop the pride as the whole group as a whole. Let's just be strategic about it. 
Yeah, this reminds me of a conversation I had in Germany, sitting there with friends of mine, uh, two couples, uh, American couple, me and my wife, the German couple, him and his wife, and a couple, uh, the woman is Italian and the man is Bosnian. And we're all talking in German because that's the only language that we all had in common. And so at this point, the lady of the house says, Ich bin kein Deutscher, ich bin Europäer. I'm not a German, I'm a European. And then I said, dann sag doch, wo ist der Bahnhof auf Europäisch? I said, then say, where is the train station in European? And she got this funny look on her face because there is no European language. In order to, in order to be a European, you have to be a German or an Italian or something like that. Michael, this you're an English professor. You get hung up on this language thing. Look, no, no, wait a minute. Bio no, wait a biology, minute. I am biology, saying, I am let saying, me finish. Biology has levels of uh, uh, cons conservativeness and, and, and levels of change. And things that are very conserved are uh, the genetics and then the anatomy and then the physiology and then the neurobiology and then the culture. And the culture is an expression of neurobiology. And it's not deterministic, we can come back to that. And, and on top of that, then you have language and the language is the most malleable of the, of the expressions of the human biology and the human mind, which is one confluent transition. And uh, you, you, I, I believe you're pinning way too much on, on language. Although, I mean, if you look, if I take my American Heritage Dictionary and look at the map inside they have of the uh, Indo-European groups, yes, there was, at least in past history, good matching between genetic uh, phyletic studies and, and people's languages. But the language is the most malleable and it is not the identity of a people so like in your discussion with Jared Taylor, where you talked about the, the, Poli the black girl in Poland and eating a sandwich, um, I, I think it's sometimes your uh, uh, anecdotal stories, uh, although they're interesting and they're not without value, I, th I think they are sometimes uh, misleading. There is a Polish there is a Polish genetics and it's, it's worth saving. Polish, Polish is a language. English is a language. It is not a biological determinant. It's a language. I'm the point to get back to our, the crux of the issue here. I'm saying that what I said, I'll bring up Jared Taylor. Yeah. Are Jews white? This is the problem here. You've got, as soon as you use this racial designation, the Jew becomes invisible and the Jew loves being invisible because then he can manipulate the whole thing from I, behind I agree scene. with you, Jared. Jared fails <laughs> in that uh, uh, he doesn't want to treat that question that you raise, but using his own principal component <laughs> statistical analysis of the genet genetics, I bet you'll see that there is a clustering of uh, let's say Ashkenazi Jews that don't that doesn't overlap with the other clusters or doesn't overlap strongly. There, there is so in, in that part, in that sense, I agree with you. There is an ethnic 
integrity to the Jewish gene pool, despite some, you know, incursion. I, I, I guess that the theory now is that they start out as a group of Jewish men intermarrying with some European women back, you know, like around, you know, like in Roman Empire, early Roman Empire. And, um, and then it's basically shutting the gene pool off. But even then there was some, whether it's from rape or whatever, um, but the point is, I, I think that your Jewish identity, the, the, they do, do not identify as Europeans. And, and they, they uh, one thing I noticed now is that a lot of Jews are bailing out of being white because what, being white is now pathologized, you know, something that's bad and, and people uh, uh, are running away from it. I noticed a lot of people, a lot of white people are fighting non-white ancestors now because it's such an advantage getting into college or something. Uh, and I think you're going to see a lot more of that. It happened in Australia. All of a sudden, a lot of white Australians found Aboriginal ancestry. And, and, and it's, you know, it's fungible, you know, you can, and maybe even some truth to it. But uh, people are going to use whatever they can to, to benefit themselves. And, uh, Out of respect but, uh, for your time, I, I'm just noting that we're, we're, we're pushing just beyond an hour now. Yeah. Uh, so uh, would you two... What do you think? Should we uh, come up with some concluding uh, uh, discussion between? Yeah, I, I think it's time to tie it up. I think we've had a really productive yeah. discussion, and yeah. now and now we're on a topic that is outside of the original parameters. And we could talk yeah. about the relationship between the brain and the mind, which yeah. I think would be a really interesting discussion. But that's a different discussion. And I'm I'm a I'm a uh, uh, I'm a logos guy. I think that uh, whatever your biological makeup is, you have a, a, a mind that is uh, a, a, you a brain is a necessary precondition for a mind, but the mind is independent of the brain. Ultimately, obviously, you can get drunk and that will affect your your uh, your brain will affect your mind. But ultimately, we're talking about two different spheres of influence. And that's why I come down on Logos as the crucial issue. Yeah, we need to come back to that one. Um, and it's, it's one that I'm keenly interested in, 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 in my mind-brain studies. Uh, Kevin, how about... Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, my, my view is that uh, humans are uh, flexible strategizers and that the, the, the mind is able to uh, uh, create ideological structures that are not determined by, by genetics and, and that we... Uh, you know, and I, a lot of my writing is on culture. That's why I wrote a book called The Culture of Critique. And, and humans are, are certainly cultural creatures. But uh, the question then is whether the culture is adaptive or not. And, and um, I, I, I've written a lot about ideology from an evolutionary point of view. And, uh, you, you know, you can't, you can't reduce it to, to, to uh, um, genetics. And I, I do live in free will and all that that people are able to construct their lives and um, but uh, but there are you know the, the fact is you you have these forces that do impinge on human nature and like I talked about consensus when the media creates a consensus and there's a tendency towards conformity and and now there's uh, penalties for getting outside that and um, so and, and the whole Christian ideology of sinfulness I, I grew up Catholic I, I went through 12 years of Catholic uh, schools and, um, you know, we, we uh, talked about uh, 
sinfulness. And it's a very important thing historically. I think in the Middle Ages, people were extremely religious. They believed in all of that and it had profound cultural implications. Uh, but yeah, we've lost that culture now and we all know why. We've been talking about why. Uh, and and uh, we have to try to recover uh, our own our own culture, our own be able to direct our own culture, and that means we we have to really somehow uh, mute Jewish influence. We have to be able to uh, you know shut it down basically, or else we will not survive. We will not survive. Okay. Um, well, I am going to presume to penny into my calendar. Uh, at no specific date, a hope for a set of topics uh, regarding um, the relative uh, conservativeness versus malleability of the mind-brain relationship. Uh, I'd also like to talk about uh, neuroculture. Culture is an expression of specific uh, uh, patternings of uh, biology in ethnic groups and therefore uh, as a basis for our, and justification for our saying we need a relatively consistent uh, culture within which to grow. And um, uh, I think also I'd like to talk uh, next time again about practical things we can be doing in union with the overlay of the many explanations that, that work and, and work as uh, 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 intelligently deployed, deployed strategies. Hope we can do it, gentlemen. Okay. Thank you. Thank I you. really, I can't say how much I appreciate you having uh, spent time here and I'm sure the audience uh, uh, feels the same. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.